Hi there. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Travel Exchange Podcast brought to you by Herman Global, a strategic tourism marketing firm providing inspirational thoughts that are worldwide and worth sharing. You can find more information about us on www.hermanglobal.com. Hello there and welcome to another episode of the Travel Exchange with your host Florian Herman and yes we are still in the COVID season today it's April 14th and we are broadcasting live from Lander, Wyoming and we wanted to have another session to talk about another topic that's relevant for the travel and tourism industry for about COVID. So today we kind of thought maybe we would choose a topic that is very interesting because everyone wants to know what's happening past COVID. So I called it the new normal in tourism past COVID. And I want to have just conversations today. And of course, I invited another guest to the show. And this time I'm very excited because I have someone from Europe that joins the show via FaceTime. And his name is Doug Lansky. And I know Doug Lansky from various conferences like the ITB and state tourism conferences here in the United States. But also Doug is an incredible good resource to kind of understand what's happening in the tourism industry in terms of trends and looking into the future. So I will just do a quick intro about it. Um, Doug Lansky, he has been living abroad and traveling for the last nearly 20 years in over 120 countries. He's the author of 10 books, including two for Lonely Planet, and three for Rough Guides, hosted a travel channel show and contributed to publications such as National Geographic Traveler. And what I'm especially excited about it is on the speaking circuit, Doug has given acclaimed lectures at nearly 100 universities and spoken to a sold out audience at National Geographic headquarters for the United Nations World Tourism Organizations and did also a TEDx talk in Stockholm. And he set the attendance record for keynote lectures in 2012 and 2013 at the ITB in Berlin. Uh, the ITB is the largest tourism conference in the world. I've, spe I've seen speaking Doug a lot and I love his enthusiasm about tourism and his thought process. Welcome to the show, Doug. Wow, thank you, Florian, for that kind introduction. Yeah, so I know that you are calling in from Sweden. Is that correct? Where, where are you That's exactly correct. right now? I'm in Stockholm right now. Wonderful. And I know that um, you are also speaking at a lot of conferences right now. Probably you're not speaking much, right? So what's the situation here? <laughs> right now is kind of the, you can call it, it's like the new normal low season. Exactly. Um, I want to start with this, Doug. The topic is the new normal in tourism. That's really what I want to talk about it. But before we dive into this, you had actually a, a, a personal experience with COVID. Um, I think I saw on one of your Facebook posts, maybe that you got sick of it. Can you describe a little bit what, what happened and what did you think you did have it and what was your experience? Yeah, I'm kind of an early adopter. I don't have a test to show that I definitely had it, neither a tester at the time nor an antibody test right now. I hope to get an antibody test as soon as they become available here um, to be able to prove that I've had it. But I mean, I was in... Uh, the Alps exactly in kind of the epicenter of this area uh, where it was, well, 
the virus was going viral. And, uh, and so I was hanging out in bars and I was skiing with some friends and we were in very social tights, uh, you know, a lot of people around in restaurants and so forth. And I'd been traveling a lot around Europe and through major airports right before that. So it's really would be almost weird if I did, if I didn't get it. Uh, I just, uh, I got a little bit of, uh, fever for like 48 hours. It's, kind of flu-like, it wasn't the world's worst thing, and then I kind of thought I'd shaken it. I had about two or three days where I felt fine, I started training again, and then came the coughing. Um, so I thought I was out of the woods. The coughing was worse, because it kept me up at night, and it was so extreme, it was like kind of getting back spasms from you know coughing all night. But the biggest thing was just feeling that your lung capacity wasn't quite as good, and constantly mo self-monitoring, wondering if you should go to the hospital or not, and being kind of worried about it. And that was for, you know, a few days. Um, but that was, I, you know, fortunately, that was as bad as it got for me. And I know it's, you know, many others, younger and older, uh, especially older, have, have really had it much, much, much worse. Uh, um, so that was my experience with it. And then I, I noticed as I started training afterward, um, my body, it, it took like another week or so for my body to kind of get back to almost normal and feel strong again. Uh, it took a, I, I never get sick. It's like I think it's been 30 years almost since the last time I've been sick. So I wasn't, I'm not used to it. Uh, um, so yeah, that was my ex personal experience with it. And all my doctor friends um, who I explained my symptoms to said I should be probably 98% sure that I, it was that, <laughs> given yeah. my travels and yeah. So. It, yeah, and I have to admit it, it's weird because when I when when this all happened in the news and in the media with COVID and lockdowns everywhere and somehow I felt that I had it too because um, I was a little bit short in breath and my wife said well I think it's just your anxiety or something like that I mean you, you don't know I I actually called in and said can I get tested yeah. for and they said well do you have the fever and I said no well then they didn't test me so I, I don't know if I had it or not I mean I isolated myself that's all I could do and who knows? I mean, this is an interesting thing that was still evolved to see how many people really got that disease. Um, it's it's really it's it's really interesting. Um, but yeah, coming to the topic. So um, I know that you're such a thought leader in this, and I've had another I've had another couple of other episodes with uh, talking about China. What we see maybe a little bit of a normalization there. Then we talked a little bit about when will this come back in the United States as a normalization and currently we are at a complete standstill with the travel industry. But the first question I wanna ask you, Doug, is when do you think people will start traveling again and maybe start, think, start thinking regional, but then also like crossing borders? I mean, that's a big difference here. I mean, what is, what's the summer look like? Right, well, I think the first travel that's gonna happen, the first travel that's gonna happen is gonna be domestic. I mean, it's going to be happening with people, you know, if you're if you're 70 plus or you've got asthma and you still are nervous about getting this, uh, you know, until there's a medicine or a vaccine out, you're probably going to play it safe. But I'm guessing people who've either had it and have an antibody test or almost certain they've had it or they just feel, you know, young and kind of bulletproof and they just want to, they're tired of lockdown because nothing creates wanderlust like a good lockdown. So they just want to get out and do something that what's going to happen, it's going to be domestic travel. So the winners want to call winners in this early phase of getting tourism back on i believe are, is going to be the short haul domestic travel type stuff um and that's for a few reasons one is financial 
uh, people aren't going to have as much money, so they're going to do the cheap, cheap, shorter trips. And the other thing is that people are going to be nervous to go further away, even as flights start to come on. And as they think through it, they'll even be older travelers who are say, hey, okay, I've saved all my money, I want to go to this place, and I don't care if I die there. You know, they feel pretty fearless. But then someone's going to say to them, hey, yeah, I get you're brave, but I mean, what happens if you get this when you're in whatever, Australia or Italy or wherever they're going, and they put you in a lockdown, and you know, you don't speak the language, you're stuck in the hospital there for a month. I mean, is that how you want to die? And they're going to kind of go, oh, I didn't think about it that way. No, I don't want to get quarantined or like not be able to get home and be there all alone. Mm-hmm. So I think that's going to kind of eventually, they're going to come to that form, line of thinking and they're going to kind of get a little bit put off by it. So domestic tourism is going to be strong. So countries like the U.S., like Canada, have strong domestic tourism. Germany has strong domestic tourism. Iceland, Aruba, not so much. So those guys are going to be in a much tougher place, those places without domestic tourism. Um, it's going to be car travel, probably primarily, some train travel, bus travel. Um, I don't think people are going to be so scared about maybe contracting it, these people who are venturing out. They just want to be able to get home. That's going to be the big thing. They don't want to be trapped somewhere. Okay, that, that, that's a good thought. But, I mean, I want to challenge you on this question. Um, like, let's pick the United States and let's pick New York as the epicenter right now in the U.S. And uh, let's find a rural tourism community nearby New York, maybe let's say upstate New York. And uh, aren't these uh, rural communities maybe afraid of New Yorkers that had a lot of outbreak coming in and they don't know if they bring it back into the community? I mean, is, do you think is there something that we will just see challenges that maybe a, a tourism office will say, uh, maybe we don't even want to see you? I mean, what do you think how this is going to evolve this year? Well, I think what's going to happen with this whole lockdown thing, and I think this is one of the big issues I don't think people have really thought through, at least outside of Sweden, where we have a totally different policy here. Um, here, there's no lockdown. Everyone's roaming around like it's normal. All the stores are open. The restaurants are open. They've just told people, uh, work at home, work from home if you can, and don't go out you know, as much. <laughs> But everything's still up and running here. And the idea is that when you have lockdown, they're just trying to slow the curve so they don't overwhelm the healthcare. But when people start venturing out, whether it's China or in New York or anywhere, this, they're going to get it. Just about everybody, except the people who are going to stay in hiding because they're vulnerable for some reason. But basically, just about everybody is going to be exposed to it. And we'll have better data on exactly how many people get it. And of those who get it, how many have symptoms or not. But, I mean, you're going to be exposed to it. So you may as well kind of get past that fear. It's going to happen. Um, and once people kind of get past that, st- that, you know, get to that acceptance stage, uh, I think, and they know that the healthcare system, now that we've, you know, passed that big bubble, that there's plenty of ventilators to go around, that the healthcare has got their, their act together now and they can handle it, uh, that, that's just how it's, life's going to be. That will be the new normal for the, you know, over the summer. Mm-hmm. or until the second wave comes in the fall or whenever they're anticipating it. But okay. we're all going to be subjected to it. Okay, well, so, so you're throwing a lot of things at me, which, which I really like. So second wave, we'll talk about it. But like, so you think lockdowns, what I just heard, uh, is maybe not as effective versus having not lockdowns. Like with Sweden, that's very interesting. I have not looked into Sweden, but they have a different policy there. And I understand. Yeah, Sweden went yeah. with a totally different direction. 
and and we'll see. We won't know the data for a while, and so and we're going to look around this summer when the dust settles, and they're going to all see like which countries did it right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard to tell who's doing it right because no one had that experience before. Um, but well, I'll give you I'll give you an example. Like here here in Sweden, we've had about nine hundred deaths. Okay, in in um, Denmark, I think they had two hundred and eighty five so far. And we have about twice the population of Denmark. So if and Denmark did lockdown, we did. So if we had done lockdown, if we use the same name, this was pretty similar. We'd probably have around five, six hundred deaths instead of nine hundred. And so <clears throat> the thing is, though, that we've exposed many more people of it. So as people come out of lockdown in Denmark, more people are going to get it, whereas we're going to already be exposed to it. So in a couple months down the road, we can have a better comparison. They just kind of did a better job at you know squashing that bubble that rush on the healthcare system but we didn't totally overwhelm ours here so i mean we're, we're i think we're doing okay right. um and so then there's going to be some other things that we have to calculate we're going to calculate the risk and this is what travelers are going to do is they start to put this calculations in their head they're going to go okay with lockdown you know we knew that there was more domestic abuse more alcoholism and depression and personal bankruptcies and business failures and they didn't exercise as much and that caused more deaths and healthcare issues I mean, there's a lot of things that go into the equation here, that, and we've only been really putting deaths uh, front and center. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have, we've kind of given this sort of the stage to this guy in the U.S., you know, Tony Fauci and, and other mm-hmm. medical professionals. And, you know, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but they're talking about the immediate deaths and the projected deaths, but they're not factoring into it, for example, you know, that if you have more personal bankruptcies and the economy goes down, Americans have less money to give to charities. Mm-hmm. There may be less supplies and people are dying in Africa because of it. I mean, there's a whole lot of things that go into the equation here that we're going to have to kind of wrap our heads around once we get that data in. And yeah. as that comes in, I think that's going to help put our risk management, you know, into check. And we're going to start feeling more brave. I mean, because last year there was according to the UN, there was four, or sorry, the WHO, there was 4.2 million, 4.2 million deaths due to air pollution, which we could have caused, which we could have prevented if we all went into a lockdown and turned off the factories. Mm-hmm. But we allowed those 4.2 million deaths. Um, so clearly we're okay with certain things. We're just going to have to decide where our risk levels lie and, and how we want to move forward. Yeah, that's, that's a really good thought, and I, I agree with you. It's like, I also think, for example, uh, car traffic and car accident death is definitely down right now. So yeah. while maybe death from COVID are increasing, the other deaths are decreasing, and maybe at the end of the year, we have the same amount of death that we would always have, right? Is, is that <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're gonna have to look at these kind of numbers. I mean, it, it, it is kind of interesting, and yeah, you're right. We're, I, car accidents are down something like 80%, I read. Um, and that's not surprising with people in lockdown. Um, but the other thing that's kind of, well, there's some other interest. We're also saving more lives by air pollution. And you could argue that we're saving more lives from driving and air pollution during lockdown than we are from COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've, there's professors, there's a guy at Stanford who made that analysis in China. Um, so it's, we, again, we just don't have the data yet, and we'll have to do a risk assessment later. And I think my prediction is when we do that, we'll find that, um, I'm not going to say it's plus minus zero, but I think we're going to come out feeling more brave and emboldened yeah. by this stuff. 
the we're, there's the big fears and obstacles are going to be there. And the big fear for people to travel is going to be to go abroad far away and to end up in some quarantine or to end up in a hospital and not be able to get home. So we need to change our medevac and insurance issues and the way we allow people back in on special planes. In fact, I was just speaking with guys at Airbus today mm-hmm. about how they can help create special planes or section off planes to allow mass evacuations from certain countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the kind of issues we're gonna have to tackle to get people to be less fearful about for, you know, traveling far away. Yeah, that, so talking about the new normal, I mean, that's, that's all coming in. And I wanna go more into this with kind of what, what we're gonna see. But one last question about the virus itself. I understand we are not virologists, we can't really predict anything, but it seems you, you do have a lot of knowledge in this. So, um, okay, summer, I believe, I'm just, and correct me if I'm right or wrong, I believe there will be some travel coming, domestic coming back. Uh, it's gonna, is it gonna be crazy that people are flooding the gates or are they, is it like less? Um, I'm just curious what you think, is it like about capacity? People are locked down for weeks now, they're going, they're going crazy. They wanna just go somewhere. I mean, travel right. is ultimately a therapy for them, right? They wanna go somewhere. They, I, mean, I'm, I haven't seen, I'm in Germany, I'm, my family's in Germany, I'm here. I wanted to go to the ITB in March and I haven't seen my family for almost a year now. And I, it, for me, it doesn't matter if the plane ticket is $1,000 or $2,000, I wanna see my family. So, and I think there's a lot of people that are just saying, I just wanna travel no matter what. Price is not that, it, it's, it doesn't matter that much. I just wanna go somewhere and maybe reconnect with my family. What's your thought on it? Yeah, I think there's gonna be a big wave. There's gonna be people like you who have a specific strong reason to go somewhere you know, and they're going to do a risk assessment and say, you know, in your case, screw it, uh, you want to go. Um, but no, think for a second, if you're 70 plus and you've saved up some money and you're retiring or partially retired, the chances are, and you were maybe thinking of going to Australia, you might suddenly that RV trip, you're like, hey, honey, we could drive RV here or there, or we could do a car trip and stay at these nicer hotels and, you know, sell yourself on making that a cool trip. I think domestic tourism is going to have a huge bump mm-hmm. until until either we figure out, well, until these other places figure out, the places that tourism figure out a clever way. For example, you know, here's something that could happen. Imagine that uh, the Caribbean Hotel Association sponsors a bunch of antibody testing at key markets in the U.S., and they say to them, okay, if you take this test and we have a digital health card record showing that you've taken it on this date. If you travel to Aruba or any Caribbean island within, you know, four months, as long as it's it hasn't mutated, uh, then we will insure you, or we've, we've teamed up with an insurance company, so, and we'll allow you in, and you'll be fully insured, and blah, 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 blah. I mean, there could be something clever like that that happens, but outside of that, and they may not get their act together that way, outside of that, it's going to be, I think, a lot of domestic travel. Um, I think maybe the young backpackers and young people who statistically are quite immune to getting serious repercussions from COVID, they may feel brave and, and take off. But I think mass travel, the big picture, there's going to be a big rush of domestic. Okay. Yeah. So, and um, another thing is that you just mentioned uh, something that I want to touch base on travel insurances. Like, for example, I wanted to go to the ITB from, uh, from the United States flying to Berlin. and 
I purchased uh, travel insurance, health insurance, uh, with the travel when I travel, and I paid for all this stuff like for reimbursing flights when I can't go and stuff like this. But then COVID came, ITB was canceled. I called insurance and they said, well, COVID they don't cover. They just literally it's said, called a it's a force majeure. It's called yeah, exactly. So they said, well, uh, you could have gone. I mean, the flight wasn't canceled, so we don't we don't pay anything. Do you think the insurance companies need to change something there for these kind of things? Well, insurance companies are there to make money. So if they can figure out a way to make money doing it, you know, like basically every insurance that currently exists at one point didn't exist. And then people demanded it. They're like, I lost my luggage. I'm like, okay, hey, maybe we should create some luggage, lost luggage insurance. You know, if enough people want it and demand something and they feel the need and there's a market for it, they'll do it. And they'll just run the numbers and make sure they come out on top. They're like a Vegas, you know, yeah. casino. They'll make sure that they're they're always going to win. Yeah. Um, but they'll figure out a way to insure stuff. I mean, everything can be insured. They insure piano players' fingers and models' noses and all sorts of stuff. So I mean, yeah. they'll figure out a way to do this. Um, and they just and now I think it'll happen because there's going to be enough people demanding it. Yeah. Um, that that that's a good thought. Um, so I want to come back to the new normal past COVID and our listeners are, there's a lot of them that are small tourism destinations. We call them DMOs. Um, but I wanted to ask you specifically, since you do a lot of presentation about what DMOs should do and the future of the destination marketing organization and versus destination management organization. So, and I know the last few years, all these DMOs, especially in Europe, they were struggling with over tourism. I mean, that's kind of really what we all talked about it. And right. now literally from Venice over overrun to completely zero. It's just, it's just flabbergasting to me. It's, it's just crazy to, to see this change within a year. But I want to ask you, Doug, with DMOs, what do you think they should do prepare? What can they do different with regards to COVID past COVID? Well, it gives you an opportunity to have a reboot because, you know, what you'll have is you'll have these communities where there's going to be a period with little or no tourism and you'll have people surviving and they'll be getting on just okay. I mean, and you maybe see them enjoying life and smelling the fresh air and going, hey, maybe we don't want this onslaught of tourists. And I think this is the important thing to think about in that moment is to say mm -hmm. tourism, we can have tourists, but tourists don't have to have our city or our town. We don't have to hand it over to them. We mm -hmm. can retain and control it. We can manage it. But the thing is, is that if you want to jump into the management thing, um, you know, if you're working at a circus and you're doing the hula hoop thing and the, the ringleader comes over and says, hey, I think you should build the safety net for the trapeze guys. You're like, uh, I don't know the first thing about that. Uh, you should probably get in some real safety experts so that they don't die. Uh, And so, I mean, it's a totally different skill set. So when you tell people, okay, you should do some management now, but you have the same people without education suddenly just putting, you know, changing the M and the letters and the word. Um, but, you know, you, you need a different either people with those skill sets or you need a total retraining and a mission statement of what your job is. Because what was going to happen is it's going to be, and you also, you want to set it up sort of like advertising and editorial at the newspaper where there's a firewall in between um, because you're going to have management at some point saying, Hey, we got too many people um, and we're actually getting diminishing returns on receipts. You know, we're, we're, we're losing money by having more people because we're chasing away the higher spenders or whatever. Mm -hmm. 
these folks. And you might have the marketing people saying, hey, I'm getting bonuses for bringing in more people. Mm-hmm. Well, you're going to have this natural, you want to create a natural pushback, just like you have checks and balances in government. You want that natural pushback built mm-hmm. into the system. But what doesn't work is to have all of that be one person or you know one office where you're you're saying, hey, let's turn people away. Oh, but then we lose our bonuses. Mm-hmm. No, it's like if you, you can't have that as an internal fight. It doesn't yeah. work. Your, your bonuses are going to win every time. Um, and, and therefore, then it, the management has no teeth. Mm-hmm. So you, to make them both work, like in Barcelona, there's a management and there's, there's a marketing. And they're in different buildings on the opposite side of town. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what you're looking for. They could be in the same building, but like probably want them on different floors. Um, and you have a CEO and you have your marketing side and you have your management side and you maybe even want to have, if you're big enough, destination development side doing creative stuff. And, you know, you also have your planning and marketing, uh, so your events people and other things. I mean, there's a lot of components to this, Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of the management side, I think it's really a great time to do a destination, uh, carrying capacity assessment, figure out how many people you can hold. And that's just not the number of people that fit in the hotels or Airbnbs because they can always open new Airbnbs and always throw up some new hotels. You got to figure out what your bottlenecks are. You know, so mm-hmm. if you've got one attraction that everybody has to go to when they go into whatever it is, let's say it's a bottle cap casino. Yeah. And if you're doing time ticketed entry, so you know, you can take 50 people, you know, when they book a ticket, they don't just book the ticket, they book at a specific time. So they book it Tuesday at nine o'clock, they're going to come and they arrive and you can take 50 people every half hour or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And you get your throughput for the day. <clears throat> and if, if you did a survey and you say that 90% of our visitors are going to be unsatisfied if they don't make it through the bottle cap casino. Yeah. Well, okay, so then you can handle 2,000 people there, and that's 90% of how many visitors, and you calculate how many are first-time visitors that have to do it, how many have been there before, and you can figure out, okay, we can handle whatever, 3,000, we can handle 3,000 visitors mm-hmm. without having them crying home disappointed that they didn't get in to do the thing they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you can come up with it with you know by looking at some of these bottlenecks. It's not crazy rocket science. You can figure this out. And you know what? You can always add more. If you don't feel like you feel like, hey, we could actually turn this up a bit. Mm-hmm. But it's what's harder to do is to turn it back down, to put the genie back in the bottle. So, you know, there's gonna be a temptation to just rush back and get as many visitors as you humanly can. But I think the really important thing to keep in mind is is there's typically not a linear curve. Mm-hmm. You know, that if one tourist spends $100, then if I bring in two, well, that's $200, and then just go exponentially, you know, just continue that trend. Because what happens is, is you get to a lot more tourists, and word gets out that this place is totally crowded and cheesy and, you know, overpacked with people. Then the first people that stay away are the high spenders, higher spenders. Mm-hmm. And... And let me be really clear. I'm not saying poor and wealthy and middle class. Because if you have, um, uh, you could have a wealthy person get off of a tour bus or off of a cruise ship or, or out of their car for three hours and buy a lunch or buy a postcard and a coffee and leave. And you could have a, a much lower income person stay there for two nights and go out three meals a day, attractions, and drop a lot more money. And the name of the game, I mean, you're in this to be in business, 
is you want to have a great economic impact on that community. So it's, if, if, you know, Bill Gates comes to town, but he only buys a coffee, then, you know, yeah, <laughs> that's, exactly. a, that's a bummer. Yeah. So, whereas you would much rather have Joe Schmo, you know, who comes there with a, you know, with a blue collar job yeah. and, and drops 500 bucks in your town. Yeah. So it's a, you got to kind of figure this stuff out and be smart about it and understand it's quality over quantity. Yeah. So it's such an interesting time because first we had over tourism. Now COVID came, we have kind of close to zero tourism. And right. it's interesting what's coming next. Um, I, I doubt that everything will just go quickly back where it was with kind of very crowded place in these areas. Um, I'm looking at US DMOs versus um, European DMOs. And I, l I love that you're on the show because we see both sides. And when, when I speak, when, when I just see at conferences, speakers to say, oh, like we are like more tourists is good, like more, you know, they have 4% more visitors that translates to so many jobs and so much tax dollars and stuff like this. And it seems like most of the DMOs here on the legislation are set, set on this to just say more visitors, more revenue, more jobs and so on, right? Um, and in Europe, it's kind of, they're very, very different. It's, it's not, I don't want to say the opposite, but they're not really calculating that success on a DMO like this. Is, do you see that as well? Um, both ways. They're still doing, I think, too much of that, um, where they're, they're still also looking at numbers and kind of in love with numbers. But there are a little bit more realistic in terms of that adapting this kind of quality. They're, they're putting a higher value on quality of life of locals. Mm -hmm. And they're saying they're, they're adapting a little bit more what I said, that mindset of, you know, that we can have tourists, but tourists shouldn't have us or have our mm -hmm. town. They have a little bit more of that approach. But again, not everywhere. Some places more than others. Mm -hmm. um, I, I wish they did it more. Yeah. Um, but I mean, they're and they're starting to get there and they're only getting getting there because they had crazy crowds, much bigger crowds than they've had in the U.S. in most places. Yeah. So they've had to like learn their lesson the hard way. <laughs> so I, I wanna, maybe, maybe that's why. Yeah. I want to pick a specific example, and it's not a DMO, but the same model, uh, the National Park Service, the Grand Canyon National Park. They have like, I don't know, like 5 million visitors, something like that crazy um, per year. And uh, now past COVID, they, we see already that they are afraid that they, it gets the employees sick and stuff like that. I just think the Park Service is one of the first ones probably that will start uh, limiting the amount of people getting into a park, right? And it will be a, a kind of a ticketing system. So you get a, you, you're, you're okay to get in, but there's only a, a certain amount of people to let be let in first for the visit experience, but also for the, for the safety and for the health of the people. And do you think that is something that DMLs will apply as well? Hotels will apply, clubs will apply, airlines will apply just to say, we just only allow a certain amount of people in, in our establishments. I mean, what, what do you think will happen on that? We do that already. We only allow a certain amount of people in our hotels, a certain amount on our airplanes, a certain, a certain amount at our Beyonce concerts. I mean, yeah. every place, I mean, all these leading stakeholders in tourism have a carrying capacity. Uh, <laughs> I mean, even bars have a fire code violation and restaurants and how many they can let in. The only ones who are not doing it are the towns themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, because there's no one stamped a fire code violation on the entire town of how many mm -hmm. can be there. So we kind of have to, that's why I'm saying we need to have a carrying capacity 
uh, audit done mm -hmm. and figure out how many you can hold in a good way. Because mm -hmm. in this way, you're trying to get the most money out of the experience. So you need to make sure that you don't pass that diminishing returns where you bring in more people and you're, you're, you're actually bleeding money. You're losing money yeah. instead of making money. And that, that happens. happens. So okay. I mean, that's where I think even from just a purely economic standpoint, now you could also say there's an environmental impact and you could say it's got a, it takes its toll on the locals too. So it's like a triple win. You're making more money. It's going to be easier on the locals, easier on mm -hmm. the environment. Like why wouldn't you do it? Okay. Yeah, it, it would be interesting. Um, but for example, could uh, small tourism destinations, uh, I just, I just pick a, like we live in Wyoming, let's, let's pick a, a small town like Cheyenne, Wyoming yeah. to say, yeah. and there's Colorado with a Denver front range, hundred miles away. Could Cheyenne say, we only allow like 500 visitors a day into our community. And because due to safety, because they're afraid if too many people flood in that uh, stuff, stuff will happen. I mean, do you think, is that something that could happen? Uh, is that, or is that not even possible? I mean, I'm, I doubt it is Absolutely. possible. Absolutely, and the early adopters are the ones who win. I mean, think about it. It's scarcity of resources. It's kind of this human nature. If you if you hear about a restaurant from a friend, you go, oh, my God, this restaurant opened. I want to go. And they go, oh, me too. They go, well, good luck. You can't get in for two weeks. Really? Two weeks? They're fully booked? Yep, at least. You should call them now. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, oh, my God, I want to go. So, I mean, if you hear about a place that says, yeah, they've got a limit. And then people, you have to book. And then people start booking, and then you hear the word spread. So if they put a limit market the hell out of it, create this demand, and, and then you've got this great situation. Yeah. I mean, here, here's a great thing. So I went, to, I was speaking in, in Aruba not so long ago, before the whole corona thing happened. And when I was going to go there, I said, what do you want to do? So I looked around online, there was this thing called carte blanche, where it's like 12 people that sit around a table, and I think there's like, there's a host sommelier DJ who kind of comes out and greets you, and then there's this Michelin star chef who decides what you're going to eat you don't order mm -hmm. they just kind of tell you and it looked like a cool experience and there's just a few people and so i said to them I'd, I'd love to go do that and they said oh we can't get you to that that's booked like a month in advance mm -hmm. all year round and i said like that's really the model of tourism mm -hmm. and so what they don't do is they don't add 50 chairs out back and mm -hmm. grow like crazy they kept it small kept it cozy didn't let the business consume them they kept it you know and They're milking it. They're full all year. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what you want to be aiming for. So if you're a town and you think, hey, we could jam in 10,000 people, well, whatever. Start with 500, make it exclusive. You can always increase it. Now you're going to have different stakeholders, you know, the souvenir sellers and some of the hotels or whatever. I'm not going to be crazy about that. So you yeah. have to figure out a way. But the thing is, here's the other thing to understand about a destination. It's kind of like a theme park if it's mm -hmm. done well. And I'm not, we have to think about Disney, not about the fakeness of it and the, the funny over tune characters. Think about it from the management side of it, right? So if Disney or any other theme park wants to grow, they go, okay, we add a new ride, they can market it. They add a new ride, they have to add a new restaurant, another toilet, open up another uh, uh, kiosk so people can get, get into the park quicker. Mm -hmm. They kind of have to, they have to grow holistically. Mm -hmm. um, with a destination, It's like you're kind of trying to herd cats because you have all these different stakeholders who want to mm -hmm. do different things. So one hotel guy wants to put up five new hotels, and then this guy wants to shrink his business. And you're trying to – like this has to still work for the same number of people. Mm -hmm. And so you really need to sort of get them 
all working together in this holistic way, and that's how it's going to really click. How you do that, boy, that's tricky. How yeah. do you get everything? I mean, that's the magic thing right there. But you, if you can get them to see that, I think that's the first thing. If you can get everyone, all those stakeholders, to sort of see that vision mm-hmm. and to understand they all, that this like rising tide of holistic growth will mm-hmm. lift them all and keep them all at high occupancy, you know, all year mm-hmm. round, but by limiting it and growing slowly in a controlled way, not just whoever wants to open an Airbnb and whoever wants to throw up a hotel. Yeah. That's, that's the way forward. Yeah. I, I think Go that's a great it. model. Yeah. It's it ultimately after what, what comes out of COVID is, is or like past COVID is carrying capacity. I think people will probably be more saying, uh, I, I put the, the example that comes in mind is in Austria that that ski resort Ischgl, I don't know if you've seen that mm-hmm. in the news, but they had yeah. all these people in these bars and no one knew. And then they had a few cases, but uh, they didn't respond to it and it caused a, a huge problem down there. Um, and I think carrying capacity is kind of something that really comes out of it. I hope it will. <laughs> we never know. But uh, yeah. it's definitely this. This is the time right now to think about these things since we are sitting at home trying to develop strategies. Um, but I totally agree. That's something that comes out of it. I want to go back to the traveler, not so much to the demo, the, 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 the usual traveler. And I put this word responsible travel out there right now. We see this as a trend um, anyways. Do you think that responsible tr- uh, travel is even bigger now after COVID? Like someone is more careful of traveling, choosing specific destinations because they are very um, uh, like uh, like clean, like maybe do a lot of things to take care of their, their customers. What do you think in terms of responsible travel will happen? I, personally, I don't see any big changes. Like, you know, mm-hmm. if you liked mini golf before COVID, now you don't like it anymore or vice versa. I don't see us having this big kind of shift that way in our likes and dislikes. I, the, the Really, the biggest shift I see is in how careful we are, and especially with older people. You know, like when my mom was sick, when we were going to go somewhere, she'd go, I just want to make sure that they have a good hospital there. Yeah. And I think in the same way, people might be concerned about that a little bit more or, you know, that, that destination that has a good hospital and they want to promote that, they might even want to promote how many reg, you know, how many ventilators do they have on mm-hmm. stock. You know, if they have a high ventilator per, per capita, they might want to be promoting that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's going to, and like also if they have a great return policy, medevac policy mm-hmm. with the U.S., you know, they can get you home because what you don't want to have happen, what scared the behoogies out of a lot of people, would have a bunch of cruise ships floating around offshore that no one would let dock. Like, they wouldn't let Americans dock in their own country and get mm-hmm. them to a hospital. In my, that made me sick. Yeah. That we don't have that. Like, we can bring home soldiers from wars who are sick and wounded, but we can't throw up a tent and and bring people in and then triage them and get them to the appropriate hospitals wearing protective gear that that really made my stomach my stomach turn you know um yeah uh, yeah that ugh. not that i'm like i'm this huge cruising fan just mm-hmm. more how we treat we're treating our fellow americans not letting them get to a hospital i just thought that was wrong uh, yeah um, it, i think it was just a panic mode for a lot of people um, it, now I think we are kind of faced the challenge. We're accepting it. Now we're dealing yeah. a lot better with it. But the first few days or weeks, that was just uh, people were panicking. They said, "Am I that even going to be alive normal. in six months?" Right. So that's what people were thinking. And 
Yeah, and, and by the way, we are going to have more antibody tests. We are going to have better policies like you're just talking about with cruise ships and other airplanes landing and stuff. We'll, we'll have learned our lesson. We'll have stockpiles of toilet paper, masks, gloves, you know, all this kind of stuff. We will be better equipped for the coming waves of this thing and even the next virus that comes. Yeah. Uh, so this was a very extreme reaction for being underprepared. Yeah. Um, and also we'll have better di digested the data that's out there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, like coming back to the DMOs, since this is kind of a majority of our audience, you mentioned carrying capacity, which we talked a lot about it to address over-tourism. And that's kind of your your uh, philosophy when, you, when I hear you speak is really how to address that. In this kind of the next two months, um, when uh, the DML is doing strategic planning or like, or even business is doing strategic planning because I think uh, they have to, what would you recommend to them what they should do right now? What should they think about it in the for the next few years? Uh, what should they do different? Uh, this, what, what will remain the same? What are your thoughts on it? Well, I think the first question to ask when you sit down with your team is to say, what is success for us? What does that even look like? Mm -hmm. Is that jamming in a million visitors next year, 5% more than next year? You know, if so, why? What are we trying to get out of tourism? You know, is our, is our goal to preserve our parks and our beautiful cities and our environment? Or is our goal to make as much money as we can in five years and to hell with whatever happens after that? You know, are we are we stewards of the nature? Are we stewards of the culture and the authenticity of this place? If so, mm -hmm. we have to take that seriously, put a value on it and say, mm -hmm. hey, we know we could make more money doing this, this and this, but we're not going to for the sake of our long term investment in keeping this good. So, I mean, you need to have a real honest talk about what success means um, mm -hmm. and and kind of write the plan that way. And and I think once you have that philosophy in order, I think the other things fall into line a lot more easily. That's great. Yeah, I think so. Um, good. So we're kind of at the end of our show. And so we discussed the new normal in tourism. Um, and I think there's a lot of thoughts. Uh, we will look back maybe a year from now and and see like what you said, like a lot of things were true. Um, of course, it's really <laughs> hard to tell right now. But I... Yeah. I just love that we be having creative thoughts and, and look into the future right now. Um, maybe uh, if you want to just close with any final thoughts to our audience, our audience, as I, as I mentioned, are the smaller tourism destinations, uh, attraction companies. What are your, th your final thoughts? What do you want to tell them in this special time about the new normal in tourism? Yeah, I would say don't give up hope um, that a lot of other uh, generations have experienced wars and various other outbreaks and i think you know compared to those things this is a blip we will definitely recover we will come back strong uh it's just a matter of time we're going to get smarter about this um, and to really use this time this downtime to reassess reevaluate um, make some improvements you know it's like often when they have a you, you show up somewhere and they say closed for repairs and you're like damn you know, and wanted to go in there. Well, you know, use this time to make those adjustments. It's, a, it's an opportunity. Wonderful. I think this was great to have the interview with you and giving us a lot of uh, inspirational thoughts on this. So we thank you so much for being on the show, Doug, and we wish you all the best. Uh, and we will look more into Sweden, what they're doing right now. I think that sounds very interesting. And um, yeah, so maybe we'll have another interview one time once this is back about another topic. 
and uh, please stay Absolutely. stay healthy and uh, take care of your family. Good, and then, so we're kind of concluding this podcast. Yes, um, and then we conclude this podcast with uh, the final thoughts. So we will have additional sessions uh, very soon. We will talk a lot about technology, but also some other stakeholders and how they get through the COVID season. So stay tuned and uh, take a look again at the Travel Exchange. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to the Travel Exchange and you will hear from us regularly. You can find it online on iTunes, Spotify, and various other outlets. If you have any podcast topic ideas, you can use the contact form on our website, www.hermanglobal.com.